0: and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is a podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery.
1: And my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to the episode four of the summer series Winter Warmies season that we run in uh, in January of every year. And in today's episode, we're talking all about eating, body, and living counter-culturally.
0: Well, mindful eating, yes. And body positivity, yes. And living counterculturally. Yeah. So, my guest is Kaylee Gray in this episode. And I'm really excited to bring this episode to you again. Back. Yeah. uh, As part of the summer series, Mm. because it was a very impactful conversation between Kaylee and myself. And not only for me, but I I received a lot of feedback from this conversation because of the way that Kaylee speaks about food and body image and stories that we tell ourselves about both of those things and, Mm. you know, who we are and how we fit into the world at large. Mm. And it deserves to be highlighted. You know, I think particularly at the beginning of a year, when perhaps you're considering any changes that you'd like to make in your life, this is such a, a grounded, centered, kind of focused way of doing that, that doesn't buy into diet culture. It does not buy into the idea of body
1: shaming totally or i'll be
0: happy when you know i I call that the
1: rules based culture you know there's always like these specific do like do's and don'ts
0: yeah which have you noticed change over time do Mm. do this and don't do this they change over time exactly and it's all tied to consumerism yeah exactly kaylee and i get into that yeah and i think it's I, just a much gentler and more human-centered and, and compassionate way of looking at the choices that we make about um, the food that we eat and that we don't eat, and why it's all okay. You know, Kaylee's just such a wonderful conversationalist. So she's like sunshine mm. in a human being, would be mm. how I describe Kaylee. Yep. and it's uh, towards the end of the conversation, actually, she flips the the interview tables. And, and The kind of...
1: interviewer becomes the interviewee. Exactly.
0: And I, I always remember when people that I speak with do that because mm-hmm. I, I kind of love it when people do that. So it's um, it was a lot of fun for me to to chat with Kaylee, but also a really powerful conversation.
1: And so to find out more about this conversation, head over to slowyourhome.com slash summer series. We hope you enjoy this episode and we're looking forward to bringing you the last episode of the season. Next week
0: we are indeed. Oh, Kaylee, hello, How are you? Hello, lovely Brooke. I am fantastic. Thank you. How are you? i'm I'm really well. Thank you for asking. <laughs>
2: <I'm> <laughs> that really is my well.
0: pleasure. And welcome home to Australia. Thank you, mate. It's um it's been a bit of a trip, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one
2: euphemism for, you know, changing country with your entire family and doing a book tour, and everything else that you've done in a whole year. I, I really admire you, Brooke. I, I think it's such an inspiration, everything you've taken on.
0: Thank you. That's a really lovely thing to say. <laughs> it's true. Because um, well, we were talking before I hit record about, you know, the, the process of mm. reintegration and moving and settling, and it's it's been a lot. So um, thank you for saying that. And also to everyone listening, thank you for bearing with us as we've taken a bit more time to get this this series of the podcast ready. Uh, but as you've already heard, the first few episodes have been awesome, and this episode is going to be no different. <laughs> because Kaylee, I'm so I'm so excited to talk to you. We've been mm-hmm. back and forthing through email over the last few months. You've been really patient with me
1: <laughs> as no, I've settled, no,
0: no. <laughs> and I think that you and I have so many parallels in the work that we do, um, and the way that we encourage people to dig deep into why we do what we do, and perhaps how to make changes. So your, you know, essentially your work is in encouraging and developing body positivity in people and Mm. helping people to heal their relationship with food and their bodies. And what I hear when you talk about your work is that essentially you're teaching people to be (laughs) countercultural because we are taught to dislike ourselves, you know. Mm. Um, We are taught to have over decades – disordered views of food and mm. our relationship to food so can you just tell me what was the the catalyst for you beginning this work
2: oh, thank you so much for that beautiful question and a gorgeous summary of what i do as well you know you've got one of those jobs like myself where we kind of color outside the lines and it can be really difficult to explain the work that we do so thank you thank you for summarizing that so gorgeously uh, to answer your question brooke I um, I really deeply struggled with disordered eating and body image myself throughout my teens and my early twenties. Food took up ninety percent of my daily energy, bandwidth, emotional space, uh, physical time, and commitment. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I'd carried around this enormous burden of guilt and shame about that period in my life, thinking that. I was, you know, one of the few broken people who experienced this battle with food and, and body image. Yet when I graduated as a clinical dietitian and started working with people and seeing firsthand insights into the way that other people relate to food as well, it was like having these blinders ripped off and You know, I realized that this stuff is so much more common than what we think. And in actual fact, there are really good reasons within our culture as to why so many people are led down this path of dieting and hating their bodies and feeling like food just rules their lives. So yeah, my life's work today is all about helping people to have that fantastic relationship with food and their bodies, both because I know what it feels like when things are not that way. And because you know i 've seen over the last decade just what an impact this has in people 's lives mm. as well,
0: yeah, I mean, as you say, so much so much energy, so much bandwidth uh, mm. can be taken up by this relationship with food in our bodies, and what you 're essentially doing is freeing people up to use that elsewhere by healing that those relationships, which is is phenomenal, so you said you 've become aware over the course of your career of the cultural reasons why so many of us grow up feeling this way about food and about our bodies can you i mean share some of those with us absolutely (laughs) this is a big juicy topic like we could talk all day about yeah
2: (laughs) but i will i will offer you um at least how i see it i uh, because there's there's lots of different viewpoints on this obviously but um It's interesting, culture is something that we all take for granted. So when we're embedded and living within a culture, we don't see that for what it it is, right? Culture Mm -hmm. is made up of all the normative things that we do each day, the assumptions that we make. It's kind of the paradigm through which we live and see our lives. And of course, it's not until you go overseas and you travel and you go into a different culture that you realize, oh, actually, I do live within a culture. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So in the Western world, I think what's driving a lot of this really pervasive unhappiness with body image uh, is is diet culture, Mm. which is shaped by two different things, which I'm happy to kind of define and explain for you and then share how that all kind of relates, if you like. Great. Yeah. So um, to me, diet culture is driven by two different phenomenons. One is this era that we're in of food abundance and food industrialization and the second is this ever increasing thin ideal and picture of what beauty is for women and at face value that can seem like they're two different things but they're very very much interrelated so if I explain the food abundance side of things first you know I, uh, if, if we wind back the clock in our food supply even just a hundred years, uh, we have had such fast swift changes in the amount of food that's available to us as humans. You know my grand shares this story of Christmas times in, in her childhood. And guess what was the biggest treat in her Christmas stocking 80 years ago? It was an orange.
0: Oh my gosh, you see, you knew that <laughs> only because my nan said the same thing. <laughs> oh my
2: gosh, our poor grand. Like yeah, there's, there's, you know, an orange is exciting. I mean, Brooke, you've got kids. How hard is it to even get kids to eat fruit these days? You know, right? To have to consider that. You know, less than a century ago, eating a, a an orange was a real sign of privilege mm. and treat. Yet, with food industrialization, we're in this environment of food abundance where we've it's all been flipped in its head. All of a sudden, the focus is on eating less, eating less, eating less. Mm-hmm. However we as humans are not biologically designed for starvation. Right. (laughs) We are completely wired to withstand starvation because from an evolutionary perspective, we were frequently exposed to times of famine and food scarcity. So we've got increasing weight going up with increasing access to food yet increasing pressure to diet and get that weight off as well. So it's a real paradox, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first thing that kind of is sitting underneath diet culture, and then the second thing is this sort of idea that beauty comes in this one Mm -hmm. very defined genetically small part of the population So again, going back to our grandmother's era, we had the Marilyn Monroe's, we had curvy, beautiful actresses. We had a diversity of of, of body image on our screens Mm. in marketing. And yet, you know, today, the average model is size six and the average millennial is exposed to between four and 10,000 marketing images a day Mm. of that. (laughs) So the bar of what we as women are expected to reach in order to look beautiful is higher and more difficult than ever before and it's also more in our faces than ever yeah. before
0: I mean it's it, it's phenomenal to me that um that number that you just shared <laughs> <Yeah>. four to <laughs> ten thousand marketing yeah. messages and it really it really scares me and it makes me incredibly sad but for mm. for current generations kind of growing up in the social media age in digital media age like i was, at least i'm old enough to remember a time when mm. the only time i felt bad about the way i looked was if i picked up a magazine you know mm. um, and that's very different to being bombarded with 10,000 images a day or marketing messages a day telling me that i'm not good enough to me it's inc- it's devastating so i absolutely see and agree with everything. It's funny, I'd never really made that connection between um, the industrialization of food um, and the abundance of food with body image, but the way you unpacked that makes so much sense because we're getting these two completely different messages uh, (laughs) at the same time, which cannot both fit, you know, and I don't think either of them are a a positive fit, but they cannot both exist together in our heads and us be okay with that, you know, so no wonder people are... Um, confused and overwhelmed and looking for solutions. Um, do you think that the – because, I mean, I, I don't know if it's because of the inputs that I allow into my life. You know, I I follow mm. a handful of body positivity um, profiles on Instagram, for example, like the Way community, which I think mm. is doing really good work mm. in just – broadening representation of normal you know it's essentially saying um you are great just the way you are and that's the the least important the least interesting thing about you because you are not (laughs) how you look Uh, you know and i love the work that they're doing is is it shifting do you think that there is a, a shift towards body positivity or is that just because i've surrounded myself with more positive messaging
2: oh that's such a great question and you know kudos to you for for doing that for yourself and in doing so Brooke please don't underestimate the power of what you're role role modeling for your kids for the next generation like we, we we need more women who are stepping into this so thank you first and foremost and but to answer your question there are Certainly, I believe that there, there is a shift. I think, you know, we've now got 30 years of really robust di- uh, data mm-hmm. in the nutrition and diet research community, which is we're, we're starting to get allowed about it and say, you know, this way of telling women to be healthy and look a certain way isn't working. So I'm seeing shifts in my professional industry. Okay. Which, when that happens, of course, that that starts to filter into um, the mainstream as well. So, you know, ten years ago, when I started looking at this stuff, nobody knew what even the term body positivity right. meant. Whereas now, we can have you know conversations on a podcast, and 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 most people listening will probably have a sense already of what that is. So, yeah, it is it is slowly shifting, but I I still think there's so much more that needs to be
0: done. Mm. Absolutely, and I think that what you do is such a vital part of that. Uh, and going back to this, this idea of being countercultural in your mm. work, and it absolutely is countercultural, but, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what we're talking about, if you choose to live in a way that is countercultural, you know, we're choosing to swim upstream, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and operate outside the status quo. Is that something that came naturally to you or is that something <laughs> that you had to develop over time?
2: Oh my goodness, Brooke! It is something that I am still (laughs) doing. So I'm the first person to put my hand up and say that I I still don't have this perfect and all figured out. It's such a cliche, but this is absolutely a a journey and a practice. So I am I'm learning and growing in this all the time as well, and stuffing up by the same token. Mm -hmm. So I um, I think, and my experience was that I hit absolutely rock bottom, Brooke. Like, I um, was waif thin. I wasn't eating very much in a day. I had lost my periods. Like, I, uh, there was, it, it was really critical mm. for me. So, I was kind of forced to uh, turn the ship around. Or the alternative was was a pretty scary path that I was going down. And the experience of the women that I work with as well is it's like, you know, the average lady in my my, my coaching practice is in her 50s and 60s because she's been through 30 years of dieting and body hate and has kind of learned through the the hard knock rules of life that, you know, this isn't working for her. So I'm, I'm finally, I've got, I've got to do something because my old way isn't working anymore. Um, so, you know, the the really sad part in, in my answer, I guess, is that I think diet culture takes such a toll on us that it's only when we're really completely depleted from yeah. it that we can finally go, okay, well, this isn't going to be popular, this might be counter to everybody else's expectations, but um, I'm left with no other choice because the way that I'm doing things isn't working anymore.
0: Right. That is is a really sad realisation, isn't it, that Mm. we, you know, and it's, I'm asked this question a lot, uh, you know, in terms of the work that I do. People, like, I, I hear all these stories about turning making changes in the way you're living. And it seems like people only reach that point when they get to a crisis point or hit rock bottom. How can I avoid that? And I asked um, Sherry Salada, who was a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she said, we just need to pay attention to the stories that people are telling and believe them before we get to that rock bottom moment ourselves. And I think that- Again, the work that you do, even just people having conversations about their own body image issues and the journey that they're on to turn it around is really important as long as we, as women particularly, we commit to believing them, you know. (laughs) We've got to commit to believing people and listening and really taking them seriously um, because otherwise we're going to wait another generation you know we're going to wait until we're in our 50s and 60s perhaps before we're like all right I'm done with this finally <laughs> yes. now help me you know yes
2: yes that's yeah. so true and you raise such a good point this isn't just with food or body images. this is often it seems to be like a bit of a human characteristic isn't it that yes. we're sort of forced into change um out of sheer need and desperation at times um but yes you're right there also needs to be a balance to listening and understanding from other people and this is why like thank you so much for having a conversation around this because a lot of this stuff is still locked away you know it's kept quiet the fact I mean can I give you a very um easy example that I think people will be able to relate to. Of course. To demonstrate this. Uh, Okay, so think for a second about how much attention the freaking gluten-free diet gets in Australia. (laughs) Okay?
0: Never heard of it. (laughs) Never
2: heard of it. Oh, my gosh. You have to, like, live underneath a rock to not hear about, like, gluten-free, grain-free eating, right? In actual fact, celiac disease affects one in 100 Australians, 1% of the population. Right. How many people in Australia right now have an active eating disorder?
0: Oh, I don't know. I, yeah. I feel like it's going to be a lot more than one in a hundred.
2: Yeah, it's four in a hundred. Wow, that's that's you know four times higher. <laughs> how how often do we hear about the go on a um, you know body love and yeah. don't stress about your weight diet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a thing. So um, yeah. Uh, that, that it makes me really sad, but there there is a shift and there is a change, and it's happening slowly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think maybe real change does happen slowly, because it, it, otherwise it sort of becomes a trend and then it fizzles out. Mm. Whereas this oh. is real um, grassroots, lifelong change um, mm. that that people are making is my hope. That's my hope. When I see something taking, like the momentum is building, but it is building slowly. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully that is that is why. Um, speaking of why, actually, that's something that I think both you and I, again, do. Uh, and I want to delve into this in your work. You basically, you, you essentially encourage people to ask the question of themselves, why? You know, why mm-hmm. we do what we do, why we eat what we eat, why we buy what we buy. Mm-hmm. Is that a, A question that yourself and your clients come to easily or is that something that really (laughs) takes a bit of digging
2: oh my goodness I love this it it, uh sometimes a bit of both Mm -hmm. and so first things first I guess is you know if if eating healthily or living slowly or having more mindfulness in your life whatever change you're trying to implement if it was as simple as just knowing what to do We'd be like the highest functioning humans ever, wouldn't we? So uh, knowledge does not automatically translate into action. And it's interesting, and I know you speak about this in your work and in your books as well, the kind of default human thinking is to blame yourself and get bogged down sometimes in criticism about why you're not able to do something or how you're not measuring up. You know, we're so critical of ourselves Mm when a really more helpful approach is not about, you know, putting your head in the sand and pretending that things are all okay or that there are some some patterns in your life that aren't really serving you, but it's about, you know, adopting self-compassion and self-care and kindness so that you can even step into that difficult space of exploring what this is all about. And so to, uh, I guess, answer your question, Is it, does it come easily or or naturally for people? No, not always. But once you start that process of of inquiry, I think people see the value in it quickly. And that's where real change happens as well. So you start actually getting results. You start transforming, you start doing things differently. And that is, is reinforcing. Mm.
0: It's it's really interesting to me that that shift, you know, because I think sometimes we're dragged kicking and screaming into asking those <laughs> deep, uncomfortable questions. Because yeah. you know, w- w- like it's, it's it's easier to stay comfortably stuck. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, even if we're stuck in a situation we don't want to be in, I think that's kind of easier to be over there. But when mm. someone's like, no, no, we're going to dig deep <laughs> and and really start to excavate our reasons and our um, you know, our choices and and what has informed them over the years, but what I find happens is that people once they have this why and they can start thinking about purpose and they can start thinking um, in a more proactive way where they, they recognize that they have choices and they recognize they have agency um, and, and you put purpose at the center of what you do that starts to inform every choice that you make you know uh, I, I talk about my eulogy but I know right. that you do work with people to to kind of come to a center of their own values as well and once you have that you're able to say, well, is this getting me closer to or further away from that? And it's it's so powerful. It's so difficult, but it's so powerful. Uh, and I mean, do you find that uh, once we have this this kind of central core of why we're making changes, that that things blossom more readily oh. from there? <laughs>
2: Yes. Well, sometimes it's a bit like a burning of the, you know, what's it, the uh, metaphor with the phoenix? You know, you've got to yeah, burn little bit of rise from the ashes. <laughs> so it, it can be messy, but um, 100%, Brooke, so um, I love uh, values are absolutely central and completely drive our choices, whether we're conscious of it or not. But when you're really, really clear about what your values are, all of a sudden you've got this guiding compass as to how you want to live your life. So to me, when I think about diets and the very conventional way of approaching health and weight loss in the Western world, I envision it like a set of railway tracks. It's like you've got one clear direction, one directive, and as long as you're sticking to the rules and playing by the rules you feel on track, but inevitably, when things slip up because we're human and this is life, all of a sudden you've, you've lost your way. So you're stuck in that all or nothing mm. kind of way of approaching things. Whereas when you've got values and you're clear about how health and the way that you want to live your life and how that sits within within your values being a compass, it's like you can zig and zag and you can be flexible, but you've always got this like beautiful guiding true north to come home to. Uh, And and to me, that's such a a more self-kind, liberating way of going about life yeah well
0: it's compassionate you know it it's it's acknowledging that I mean just because you have a compass doesn't mean everyone heads north all the time right know. <laughs> you, know, you take detours you, <laughs> yeah. You, you, <laughs> yeah exactly and I think that that maybe going into the process understanding that mm. is mm. so important no matter what changes we're talking about it's so important to acknowledge that it's a very rare person if one if one such exists who can stick to those railway tracks, mm. um, and even if you can, I mean, the toll that that all or nothing approach takes on, as you said at the very beginning, on your mental health, on your um, emotional bandwidth, on your physical energy is enormous. You know, so is that a, is that a price we're willing to pay? And I think maybe that's what modern diet culture is proving that at the end no people aren't willing to go all or nothing because you know eventually we we go to a party or it's christmas or you know we just feel like eating some chocolate and that's okay like it's it's really interesting and i think it's a really yeah a, a kind and a, a compassionate approach to making changes um it's really cool to see that parallel mm. you know in in what a kind of Related, but quite different areas of, of work that you and I do. Uh, and it all comes back to values. One thing I wanted to ask you is uh, I think, I mean, I think, I'm curious to get your uh, opinion on the link between diet culture and capitalism and consumerism.
2: <laughs> what a great question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> So in America alone, the diet industry is turning over about $60 billion a year annually. What? Yeah, it's insane. Uh, I don't have current stats on Australia, but, I mean, we're kind of like the poor cousin of America as, to, as far as capitalism is concerned. So uh, this billion. is a mega, mega industry. And to to speak to your question earlier about is the narrative changing, are there cultural shifts And uh, partly why I think this is happening so slowly is that there's so much money driving culture Mm -hmm. in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know you speak about this as well. People can't sell you something that, that that you don't think you need (laughs) so keeping us trapped in this idea of thinking that our bodies need to be fixed that we need to source outside solutions to our health that we need rules and outside support in order to tell us how to eat there is so much money in that Um, and so absolutely this is very much tied up to capitalism and money and mega industry. So, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's just blown my mind um, and it makes you realise, I guess, what you're up against trying to, to make this grassroots individual change with people um, is that you can absolutely deliver them Everything they need to hear, um, and the tools that they need, but then they open their phone or they scroll through Instagram and they're <laughs> hit in the face with a flat tummy tea and you know some celebrity selling uh, a waist trainer and blah blah blah, <laughs> and it's a kind of it, you really do need to be prepared for that, don't you? Is there um, do you do any work with people to encourage them to shift their even just social media inputs or their you know the media <laughs> inputs? Do you encourage people to to um, get real about that and maybe make some changes. Oh my goodness, a hundred
2: percent. So uh, I, I know uh, recently you did some uh, some work on your Patreon page about you know it, it disconnecting from mm-hmm. your phone. <laughs> so I do very very similar work with my my clients, and sometimes I'll even ask them to journal you know, thoughts or changes that they feel when they have been spending time flicking through Instagram or whatever their trigger kind yeah. of exposure is for them. And it's profound. If you've got that vulnerability there, which let's face it, most of us do because this is the culture and the environment that we're living in, marketers know what they're doing. It, it absolutely prays to all of that. And the other part that I think is also related is that we have been so wired For instant gratification, right?
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. uh, And it's understandable. The average woman does 59 tasks in a day. We are busier than ever before. And so you talk about slowing down, which is such an important antidote to all of that. But I think we also have to realize that the, the quick fixes that we're being sold around diets and body image and stuff as well, they're hooking that part of us that is trained to love the quick fix. Yeah. But it's this band-aid on top of all the other deeper, slower work that needs to be done.
0: I think, um, and you speak really directly to this idea of convenience, right? And I think that convenience is the antithesis of mindful living, whether that is eating, whether that is, uh, you know, parenting, whether it's anything. Convenience and quick fix has been packaged up as the thing that will save us time, it will save us energy, it will save us money, when in fact it's actually the opposite. It really does trap us into this cycle of uh, wanting it now, wanting it yesterday, you know. Um, and I think that that's an interesting sort of um, parallel there with convenience food. Do you find that you need to do a lot of work with clients to sort of unlearn the 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 lure of convenience? I guess.
2: Hmm. That's a that's a great question as well. Um, I've never really framed it like that with my clients before, but I like the way it sounds. So am I might I might from now. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, a lot of women who come to see me are completely burnt out. Like they're juggling full-time jobs, parent, like, you know, the typical 50 gazillion balls that you're juggling in the air every day. And then she plops down in front of me and goes, you know what, Kaylee, I want to lose 30 kilos. I want to turn my nutrition around. I want to do this, 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 and that. And I'm like, I'm exhausted listening to her for her. And so, you know, I, I kind of feel like you know that game Jenga with the wooden building blocks. Yes, I love that game, and um, it's so
0: much it's fun. fun.
2: And I think it's a good analogy for how a lot of us are kind of hobbling together our lives and our health. Like with all these convenient quick fixes, we're sort of like we're plugging holes and we're slapping together things, but we're left with this like really shaky tower, right? So sometimes when I'm when I'm working with that typical frazzled busy woman we won't even start looking at her food yet it might be a let's pull out your calendar and let's get really Mm. ruthless first and foremost about just opening up some spaciousness so that you can even start thinking about your health and your food in a more grounded spacious way or let's start with um, getting a little bit more sleep so that you've got like a more stable foundation. And that stable foundation isn't quick fix convenience stuff. So yes, we are addressing convenience, but I guess I kind of, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it's very much true. Yeah.
0: I really like that. That's sort of the first step that you'll take with that overwhelmed (laughs) client is not, yeah, sure. Let's fix this thing that you've come here specifically to talk to me about, but let's um, perhaps take a step back and look at why the things that you've tried to install in your life aren't sticking. Oh, yeah, that's right, because you don't have any, you don't have any time. You don't have yeah. any bandwidth. I, lo- I love that. I mean, it just shows that the way to make these changes is yes. so holistic, you know, and the, the building blocks on which we can build a mindful life, whether that is us focusing at the moment on our food or on, you know, our mental health or our physical health, whatever it is, the, the building oh. blocks are the same. You know, create a little oh. white space in your life. Allow some buffer mm-hmm. for life to expand and contract as it needs to. Get a little mm-hmm. more sleep. Perhaps drink some more water. <laughs> you know, these things, we know all of them, which is really, um, I mean, it's kind of thrilling to know that we've got everything here. It's just then, of course, as you say, creating that space in order to mm. play it out. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Can you, uh, so you talk about mindful eating and, that's something that I have had to learn about personally over the last eight years because I was a very much a mindless eater. Um, probably once my kids were born it sort of came mm-hmm. to a head in my health and I would just mindlessly grab whatever it was I felt like I wanted in the moment, whether that was a chocolate biscuit, whether it was a toasted cheese sandwich, whether it was mm-hmm. a salad. But it, but it was there was never any intention there other than I want what I want and mm-hmm. I want it now. Uh, And it's taken me a long time to really unpack that. But how do you first introduce the idea of mindful eating to someone who perhaps doesn't feel like they have time um, to slow down and eat mindfully?
2: (laughs) yeah that's a great question and well done on being able to turn that around I, I know that these are can feel like a massive shift when things like you said are in, a, in that space of mindless eating so well done Brooke and um can I I'd love I will answer your question but I'd love to know um what a, how has your experience been now that you do eat more mindfully
0: oh it's just it, I mean it, it affects everything actually, and. Again, mm-hmm. like you admitted to at the beginning, it's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. the the vast majority of time I will eat with intention and I will eat mm-hmm. things that I know that make my body feel better. Uh, and mm-hmm. if I eat something that is not optimal for my body I'm aware of that you know and I'm like okay well, yeah I might have some chocolate and that's fine or I might have an ice cream and that's fine um, but I know that it's not going to lead me to feel my absolute best taste delicious mm-hmm. but not lead me to feel my best mm-hmm. um, so it's been really I think a process of actually valuing um, how I feel you know in mm-hmm. myself and actually giving that that space and that value because truly I think for the longest time if I felt like crap that's because that's what I deserved, mm-hmm. you know. And if I mm-hmm. ate like crap and I felt like crap, well, obviously because you know you suck, and um, of course you eat bad food, and now you feel sick, and now you feel horrible about yourself, and well, naturally because you know you're that's what you deserve. And it's really been um, <laughs> surprisingly getting emotional thinking about that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really been a, a, a decade long lesson in figuring out that I'm worth some effort you know and Um. that i not only in myself deserve that but um that my family deserves me to be operating at my best and uh yeah so it has been honestly less about the food i i've discovered i enjoy cooking i've discovered i really enjoy learning about food and what works for me and Mm -hmm. you know um having my big sunday cooking sessions and all of that but but more importantly it's about discovering that um it's not really about food at all for me. It was about my headspace and my mm. my self-worth. Mm. Yeah.
2: Oh, thank you so much. That's just gorgeous, Brooke. Thank you so much for sharing. And um, I, I there's a couple of things I would really love to speak to in what you just shared and then link it back to some how-to practical steps for people to introduce a bit more mindful eating in their lives as well. But you really got to the heart of the matter when you said, you know, this is about You know, even committing to doing some of this work is about waking up to this gorgeous realisation that we are totally worth it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's this uh, self-compassion research by Kristen Neff. Have you heard of her work? No, I haven't. Oh, she's beautiful. She's got a, a gorgeous book, which I'd recommend to anybody and everybody listening, called Self-Compassion Step-by-Step. Step. Okay. So she's a psychologist and she's done her PhD in self-compassion research. And she talks about this one paper she published where they sat down essentially trying to figure out what the average Westerner feels like they need to do in order to be just Baseline okay. I'm using air quotation marks yep. there, right? <laughs> and this comes back to all the cultural stuff. So, what people in this study reported was that in order to just feel okay, people needed to be above average. They needed to be above average in their looks, in their performance at work, in their parenting, in their eating habits, in their this and their that and the other. And if you really have a look at that, I mean, it's completely setting us up to fail Mm. and not feel worthy. Statistically, for heaven's sake, like there's always a below average and average
0: involved. <laughs> That's average. literally how they work out averages. <laughs> That's
2: literally, how averages work. So, if we in, in the West are constantly striving to be above average in absolutely everything in order to feel okay, is it any wonder that we don't feel worthwhile taking very good care of ourselves? Mm. So thank you for sharing that, and that that absolutely sits underneath and at the heart of so much of this. But to to kind of shift gears and talk more to the mindful eating side of things, um, as you said, it's it's a practice that develops over time. So like any form of mindfulness training, it's meant to feel difficult and uncomfortable at first. And I often say to people, you know, learning how to eat mindfully is like muscle training, like weightlifting. If you if you haven't done it, it's going to feel really hard and tricky and heavy to start with, and you're going to suck at it. And that's okay. That's part of the process. It's with practice that we, we, we build skill and strength in this. So a, a beautiful starting point for people that requires like literally almost zero time in your day, because that's a huge barrier for people yeah. and for yourself as you were describing as you know a mum of young kids uh, we kind of imagine that mindful eating means you've got to sit cross-legged with like a Tibetan singing bowl right. <laughs> like, do all the dinner table or something that is not the case so I've been doing it wrong all time. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, so have I oh <laughs> um, you know even just taking a deep diaphragmatic breath in for a count of four and a release for a count of eight before you sit and eat can actually have a a biological shift in your nervous system so you talk about diaphragmatic breathing for calm and mindfulness as well um that just that you know what is four plus eight 12 seconds (laughs) yeah that can entirely change the, the 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 vibe of your meal and the, the the physiological benefit as well is that when we're tapping more into that parasympathetic nervous system uh, we actually digest our food better as well right so a little mindful moment a mindful breath at the start of your meal um you know test it try it out see how it feels differently i think a, a lot of people are surprised what a difference even that makes because how often do we just literally kind of dive to the dinner table kind of already shoveling in food or, yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> carrying it over to the table and totally. eating on your way
2: you know <laughs> 100% and feeding kids and doing a million things but you know just sitting down putting your feet on the floor taking a beautiful deep breath in and out can be incredibly grounding mm, and a, right. a gorgeous
0: starting point so that is, a, that is a, an experiment for everyone listening to try <laughs> for the next week. Just before you eat, before you begin, just take that one deep breath
1: mm. and see
0: and just see what, mm. what changes, if any, come about and whether or not you feel differently about, uh, you know, the way you're eating. And if you eat in a different way, is it? I mean, do you find that that helps you to slow down the way you eat rather than just kind of woof it all down?
2: Oh my goodness, it oh, it wakes you up to so many things. So yes, it, it does change the way that you eat. It changes your pleasure and awareness of the meal. And, and I mean, so much of us of our eating is dictated by the clock and habit. So sometimes I'll be getting dinner ready at a set time that I know Steve's coming home or whatever, and I'll sit down to eat it with him and I'll take that mindful moment. I'm like, oh, I'm not even really that
1: hungry right
2: now like can I maybe just sit and chat with him because I'm seeking that connection a lot of uh, a lot of our food behaviors are around social connection and and time with the people that you love can I maybe just enjoy that
0: and eat later when I'm hungry (laughs) for example right I mean even something that simple though it's um it's just the the act of taking a moment and checking in yeah, that's re- that's really powerful and really helpful because that's literally something that everyone listening can do, no matter how how many mouths are at the table, how many, <laughs> you know, jobs we're juggling, we can all take a breath before we eat because we all have to breathe anyway. <laughs> we do. Yeah.
2: And beautiful people, you are absolutely worth 12 seconds to do
0: that for yourself. Every, I can guarantee that every single person listening is worth <laughs> the, tw- the 12 seconds and yeah. more, but 12 seconds yeah. is a good place to begin. I think to to finish on a a really positive note, there's something that that I love about your work uh, and it comes through even on your even on your home is your um there's a sense of awe that you have about our bodies about the human body, and I think that is so powerful I'm currently doing an experiment with my um patreon people on awe and how experiencing mm-hmm. awe can. Can change the way we experience the world. It can change our relationships and our health and our mental, uh, our mental health and our well-being. Um, and part the first part of that experiment has been to be awed by our physicality, just the the amazing things that our body does every okay. second of every day, like our heartbeat and our breath and um, you know, um, our lungs and how they work. Uh, yeah. Can can you tell me when? You work with clients and you try and introduce them to this idea that they, their body is miraculous as it stands right now. Mm. No matter what state they think it's in, no matter how they feel about it or not, their body is miraculous. When we are raised in a society that teaches us to not ever feel like it's quite good enough, our body is quite good enough, what's the reaction when people are faced mm. with this, this idea that they are miraculous? Mm
2: yeah often it's so funny and this comes back to this compassion right often people react by acknowledging that as a truth for other people yeah. so they'll see the magnificence of other people's bodies and what other people's health is doing for them but they they somehow feel ex- excluded from that so i think it's also a little bit of that I I intellectually get that what you're saying Kaylee but I can't authentically feel that for myself right. just
0: yet. Right. And is that something that you see people come to recognize over time that yes mm-hmm. damn straight I'm a miracle?
2: Absolutely. Like we do very intentional work around that and I'm, I'm happy to share a few suggestions for people to that would too. be wonderful. That's helpful. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a couple of really fantastic Um, starting points for this. And the first is actually a a body image exercise. So I remember in the deepest, darkest times of my disordered eating, when I was first introduced to this idea of positive body affirmations, like standing in front of a mirror and going, I love my legs. I love my shape. I look like it just felt so inauthentic and fake and it really didn't sync with me so I had a sister at the time who was also recovering from an eating disorder and we set this exercise each day that we committed to for three months and I've done this with so many clients and always hear amazing things from people so if any of today's chat resonates with with you if you're listening um, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly recommend to give this a go So instead of affirming things that you like about yourself, my sister and I texted each other three things a day. We texted each other firstly an affirmation about what our bodies do for us. So Brooke, you don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable but do you have a part of your body that you default pick to like if your brain's allowed to just go crazy wild and free <laughs> about body image <laughs> do you have like that zone that you just automatically see in the mirror and go oh my god <laughs> I hate that about myself yeah or... my
0: stomach yeah yeah
2: so um that's tummy but thighs are like the typical thing that women go to as their default pick on I also hated my stomach at that time and I couldn't have looked in the mirror and gone I love my tummy it's beautiful Right. what I could do is I could text my sister something that I was grateful about what my stomach does for me so using the tummy example you know I um, worked with uh, uh, digestive diseases in the early stage of my practice and I used to work with people who had pegs which um, for any people who don't know, it's essentially when you've had part of your digestive system removed and you have to essentially poop through a bag right. that is inserted in your stomach. And so the point of, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm I always mindful you don't want to sort of um, shame anybody in that situation, but there's always people who would die to have a functional part of your body that, this kind of can you can use that to sort of shift your perspective and go oh my goodness thank goodness I'm whole complete healthy today
0: yeah which is perspective it's just saying okay you know yes I I feel this particular way about this particular part of my body however you know (laughs) pull back and think about just challenges and struggles that other people are having and that some people wish that their problems that your problems were theirs
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds kind of morbid, but it's it sort of, I think as humans, we can get stuck into sort of navel gazing a bit about ourselves. And it's helpful to broaden the, the lens and go, oh my gosh, there's actually so much to be grateful about in yeah. my, my situation right now. So pr- that daily practice of affirming things that you're grateful about what your body does for you starts to rewire that default thinking. So instead of you know, seeing yourself in the mirror and going, oh, my God, I hate my stomach, oh, Mm -hmm. my stretch marks, oh, my this or that. It's like, oh, my gosh, I'm so grateful that I have um, a tummy that is working and digesting for me and serving me each day. Like how lucky am I?
0: I really love that shift. I feel like I would be far more likely to do that than stand in front of a mirror and um, just tell my tummy how much I like it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, bitch, are you
0: kidding? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> totally. And that that can come later down the line, believe it or not. You know, Kaylee 10, 15 years ago would have said, oh, I could never learn to like the way that I look. And and that is possible too. But the the kinder, easier access point is, is gratitude. And like mm. you said, awe, I love that word, awe for this gift of life. We have this magnificence of what our bodies are doing for us um, that, you know, that that is profound that sense of gratitude
0: yeah it really is i think grounding in that is is a wonderful place to start um kaylee thank you so much for sharing uh, your story and also there's so many practical juicy nuggets in this conversation that i hope people can take away and think on um, I'd encourage people to maybe journal on how some of the stuff we spoke about made them feel and start that that process of inquiry, of digging into why, of looking at our inputs, of recognising when we're feeling good about ourselves and when we're not and perhaps what the inputs have been at those various times. Um, and, I I mean, I've got a lot that I want to unpack from this conversation personally. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for, mm-hmm. for your time and your expertise and your your kindness. It's been an absolute delight.
2: Oh, Brooke, I wish that I could hug you in person because I just love and adore everything that you do. And um, you've helped me so much in my life as well. You know, it's funny we're talking about body image today, but body image often sits underneath other perfectionistic yes. tendencies, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, all the work that you, you do and have done over the years has profoundly helped me and and deepens and and deepens my own uh, issues in a a helpful way around this stuff as well so thank you thank you thank you so much for for everything that you are and it's been such a pleasure to be here
0: oh no pleasure's been mine i promise (laughs) (laughs) thank you thanks kaylee
1: Hi, Puck Pass.